Hey folks, Preet here. As many of you know, we recently launched Cyberspace with John Carlin, a new podcast for members of Cafe Insider. Every other Friday, my friend and former DOJ colleague, John Carlin, will explore issues at the intersection of tech, law, and policy with guests who have made an impact in the world of cybersecurity. For this week's episode, he spoke with Monica Bickert. She's the vice president of global policy management at Facebook. Prior to joining the company in 2012, Bickert spent her career in the Justice Department, serving as a federal prosecutor in D.C. and Chicago. In her role at Facebook, she's in charge of the policies that govern the types of content that can be shared on the platform. She also leads Facebook's efforts on counterterrorism. Their conversation covers a range of topics making the headlines, including Facebook's approach to fighting misinformation and hate speech and their initiatives in the lead up to the election. What follows is a sample from the episode that we're sharing with listeners of Stay Tuned. To listen to the full episode, try out the Cafe Insider membership at cafe.com insider. You'll get access to the full archive of exclusive content, including the weekly podcast that I co-host with Ann Milgram. Again, that's cafe.com insider. And now on to John's conversation with Monica Bickert. As you say, Mark Zuckerberg gave a speech out at, at Georgetown and said, I don't think most people want to live in a world where you can only post things that tech companies judge to be 100% true. And even when there is a common set of facts, uh, different media outlets often tell very different stories, emphasizing different angles and, and, and aspects of, of, of the story. So there's a lot of nuance here. And while I certainly worry about an erosion of truth, I don't think most people want to live in a world where you can only post things that tech companies judge to be 100% true. And misinformation is very different than terrorist speech or hate speech and harder to regulate. And it seems like you started to move in this space on an approach not necessarily of taking it down, but of using labels, warning labels. And then you, just as you're moving into this area, you have a particularly hard case study of COVID-19 and people putting out different information on the disease and what might be true or not true and how do you evaluate that. So, so tell me a little bit what, what the, the process is. How do, you, how do you try to label, how do you deal with the fact that there's such hot debate right now, including from the president of the United States over what's true and what's not true? This has been uh, probably the most difficult area for us, and and for one reason, really, which is you can't give people a set of rules in advance about what's true and what's false. You know, you can define hate speech. People might not agree with your definition, but you can say to your content reviewers and you can say to your users, here's how we're defining it, and this is what we're going to remove. You can't do that with what is true and what is false when there's new information out there every day. And so it's, it is by nature more difficult. What we have done, and this is, it's been fascinating to be a part of this because no company has tried anything like, like this. We're, we're the first to do it and we have the, the most robust program. In early 2017, we started building a series of relationships with independently certified fact-checking organizations. And we started out with a handful. We now have more than 70 such organizations around the world that we partner with. And what it means is, People, if, if people are reporting content as false or if our systems are detecting by the way that content is being shared that it might be false, then we will send that information could, sorry, could to these. Sorry, could you explain these, that? Sure. How would sharing um, information help you determine that it's inaccurate? Let's say that people are tending to share a certain article and then they are tending to remove it. 
and their friends are posting comments saying, that's a hoax, you goofball. Didn't you know that? That's something that behavior of sharing it and then retracting it might be something that our systems could recognize. So there are technical reasons, but also based on user reports, we could send content to these fact-checking organizations. And then they also have the ability to just proactively say, we're going to fact-check this thing that's on Facebook. If they rate something false or partly false, if they use one of our, our labels, then we will apply that label as a screen that sits over the piece of content. People have to click through it to get to the content underneath it. And then we also link people off-site to whatever the fact-check information is so people can get the real story. And that's something that that we began but have expanded. There's also a category, several categories actually, of, of uh, misinformation that we will remove. We don't just label it and, and reduce the sharing of it or reduce the distribution of it. We will actually just take it off the site. And that includes misinformation where there's an immediate safety risk. So let's say it's uh, it's misinformation that could contribute to riots in Sri Lanka. This is an example of something that we've removed. Or it's uh, something that could contribute to the risk of somebody getting COVID-19. With COVID-19 specifically, and then, sorry, we also remove misinformation around uh, voting and, and census suppression. So those are areas that other companies, uh, you know, like for instance, Twitter is applying um, labels to, to some of that that type of content. That's content that we will actually remove from the site. And when we do that, we do that in partnership with safety organizations or with electoral officials or whatever um, World Health Organization, whatever organization has the information to allow us to make an accurate determination about whether something's true or false. And COVID-19 has been really an interesting place to see these policies at work. In the past few months, in the past three months, I believe, there have been 98 million posts that we have labeled and uh, that's with the third-party fact-checking label and reduce the distribution of. And then there have been an additional 7 million posts that we've actually removed from the site for sharing what I would call harmful COVID misinformation. And that would be something where if somebody believed the misinformation, it could lead them to engage in dangerous behavior. So for instance, if you say, uh, there's a cure for COVID, don't worry about it. Or did you know that if you have blonde hair, you're immune and can't get the virus? That sort of thing, which we, we've we seen around the world, certainly not just in the United States, we will remove from the site. I was... Um fascinated. There's, there's a quote from Guy Rosen. I'm always interested in labeling, you know, it's kind of like the teenagers. If you label some adult, label something adult content, I think they're more likely to go try to watch that movie or see that video. But apparently I noticed a quote from Guy Rosen who said, when people saw the warning labels on COVID-19 misinformation, 95% of the time, they did not go on to view the original content. That That seems... Uh, pretty successful. Yes, I would agree with that. Although, look, I, I also want to point out the other side, which is that um, part of that is because you're just putting friction into somebody's experience. And so um, it's a reason that we have to be so careful with how we do this. You know, for instance, graphic content, we have a we have labels that we will put over certain graphic content saying this is really sensitive and maybe upsetting. So only see this if you want to click through. And that does really reduce the number of people who will see something. But if you talk to, say, an animal rights group, they'll say, well, that's terrible. We really need people to see this content. We need them to take animal abuse seriously. And you're keeping people from seeing it by putting friction into their experience. So um, there's, you know, there's two sides to that. But yes, I do think the labels are are proving to be 
uh, fairly successful against the sharing of misinformation. What was the decision like uh, in terms of a post from President Trump around COVID and labeling it as misleading? Uh, there was a video that we removed recently because uh, it was a post from President Trump and it, it contained a statement from a doctor that said that children are basically immune from the virus. And we have in our policies a list of things that, that uh, we hold as contradicting information from the WHO and the CDC. And that includes saying that groups of people are immune from the virus. So that policy applies to, to President Trump just as it, as it does anybody else. In fact, there have been a couple other presidents who have had COVID-related misinformation removed from their Facebook presence, um, including uh, the president of Brazil and the president of Madagascar. So in this instance, you had a... a clearly defined standard that you could use. This was in contravention of the standard and gets removed. I know you also have the newsworthiness policy and as it relates to, to politicians. And I was, I was curious to push, you know, a little bit on how that plays out because that's another one of these <laughs> very difficult issues. Tell me what the newsworthiness policy is. Uh, the newsworthy policy, and I should be clear, this is really not at its heart about speech from politicians. It's about making sure that if there's speech by anybody on the site that is about something important to public discourse, that we'll try and leave it up if we can. We will still remove it if there's a safety risk, but we'll try to leave it up if we can. We put that policy in place back in September of 2016, following the the terror of war image being posted on Facebook. That's the image of the little girl in Vietnam. She's wearing no clothing, running away from a napalm attack. We removed that image because perhaps not shockingly, we don't allow people to post images of nude images of prepubescent minors. But then we did restore that image because we said, well, look here, we know that this woman consents the sharing of, of the image. It's a very publicly known image. It's also being used to raise awareness about um, atrocities. And so we left it on the site and we put in place a newsworthiness policy that said we will try to consider the value to public discourse in leaving content up. When we apply that policy, which we do regularly, it means we'll leave content up that otherwise violates our policies. It is almost always content that is shared by people other than politicians. It's museums with um, exhibits that involve nudity, or it's news organizations sharing graphic content about something that has happened in their area. There have been only a, a, a very small number of cases that have involved speech from politicians, but there the standard would be the same. If there's something where there's a, a safety threat, we would still remove it. Well, let's talk about one of the calls that you made. That, that was a difficult one, but um, back when President Trump had a Muslim ban video... Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. It was not taken down and, and not viewed as hate speech. And I think you at that time explained that that's because upon analysis, you viewed it as advocating for a policy position on immigration as part of a newsworthy political debate. Is that the sort of decision that now would go to the outside board? It could. It certainly could. It, we Either we could send it or people could appeal it directly. So we didn't make a newsworthiness exception there, although I, you know, the, the comment was certainly newsworthy. I mean, it was one of the, the most talked about uh, things in the country at that time. But uh, we did not find that to violate our hate speech policies. And yes, people could could appeal that to the oversight board. And we're heading into an election. So as if you, uh, in case you weren't having enough fun 
being attacked by both sides. <laughs> I should add, you've, you've been attacked by, including at recent hearings, conservative groups for saying that you consistently have a liberal bias in making decisions on what to leave up or take down. We're now heading into a 2020 election. I noticed you you recently added a voting info label recently to, to President Trump's post that mail-in voting may lead to a corrupt election. What led to that decision and what are you doing to prepare for your role in the 2020 election? Oh my gosh, where to start? Um, this is something that occupies a good portion of our time right now. And, and you know, we've, we've focused on elections for years and there's, you know, more than a hundred elections around the world that, that we have to think about and make sure that we're dealing with all of them. But certainly the upcoming U.S. presidential election is a focus for us. And we now have a team that is dedicated to working on all the different aspects of making sure that we're doing our part to help the election run smoothly. And that includes things like our approach to misinformation and, and voter suppression, which we just talked about, um, taking down fake accounts or, or influence operations, which we can certainly talk more about. And, and this is maybe the most important thing, getting people accurate information about um, the election and what's going on. And this is, this is really going to be important in the U.S. election because of covid uh, because with COVID, we're, we're going to see a lot more use of mail-in ballots or absentee voting. We may see delayed election results. It's just going to be a different kind of election. And people are really going to need to be able to get accurate information. So when you asked about the informative label that we put on the president's post, that's actually something that we're doing across the site whenever we have posts where people are talking about voting. We're directing them to a new center that we just published called our Voting Information Center, you can find it. If you just go to the search function on Facebook or Instagram and you type in voting, you'll be taken to this site. And this is a very bold effort. I think it's sort of the biggest voting information effort in U.S. history. Our goal is to help people register to vote. And we're, we're targeting helping more than 4 million people register to vote. And also to get people to register to volunteer in helping with uh, polling locations. And you'll see when you go to the site, you can check whether or not you're registered to vote. You can register to vote. You can also get information from local authorities about the details about how to vote in your area. So this morning I went on the center just to check it out and see what's new. And they were posts from the California Attorney General. Those would, of course, look different. If, if you were to look, it would be posts that are relevant to you in your area. <laughs> and so to characterize a little bit, is that a way then of, of avoiding stepping into the, the difficult controversies of trying to figure out whether statements are true or not true or propaganda when it comes to voting and instead direct people to a site which is vetted to make sure that the information is, is accurate? The important thing is making sure that people have accurate information. And we're not going to be able to, to parse, you know, what is true and, and what is false, especially when you think about how local some of this is. You know, one of the things we discussed was what if people say, oh, at this particular polling place, the, the line is two hours long or it's really unsafe. There's there's not going to be a great way for us to have accurate information that will really allow us to make those sorts of decisions. So what we instead can do is just direct people to the most up to date sources where they can get that information. And that's something, like I said, where any post about voting 
we're going ahead and um, applying that link so that people will be taken to the center. Yeah, that makes it. That's been one of the things I worry about most when I think about if I were a nation state or terrorist group and I want to disrupt U.S. elections, would be putting out that type of misinformation right before the ele- uh, right before people go to vote. Yeah, that's something we're we're really focused on too, and also right after the election. You know, this is this may be an interesting election because of the potential delay in in the announcement of results because of of how many ballots may be absentee or mail-in. So we're focused on leading up to the election. We're also focused on what happens after. And we're working really closely with election officials to to make sure that uh, we're being mindful of all the risks out there. I will say with this Voter Information Center, which I, I do really hope people will check out, we are drawing on the experience from launching our COVID Information Center. So we built this, we built this COVID Information Center where people could get up-to-date information from health authorities, you know, I wasn't I wasn't sure if this would be wildly successful or not, but it has been. Uh, we've connected more than two billion people to accurate information, and more than six hundred million of them have clicked through to get accurate information about COVID. So, hopefully, the Voter Information Center will have the same kind of effect. Monica, it's been great having you here today, and it's clear that you are sitting at the at the center of something new. I mean, we're just wrestling with issues related to how to find out about a global pandemic, how to vote in in an age of overwhelming information, sometimes misinformation through a company that's just never existed on this scale before of over 2 billion people. It's been wonderful having you here today and appreciate you talking us through how you approach these issues. Thanks so much. I I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. I hope if there's anything people take away from this. I hope you found John's conversation with Monica Bickert informative. To hear the full episode and get access to all exclusive Cafe Insider content, head to cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider.